<laughs> yeah. The, the, the ugly old fish is on the chopping block, and our story is about to begin. Which I have some questions about, which maybe I'll save for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of questions. Yeah. So, so we should just have like a 30-minute question segment where we just fire them all out, I think. <laughs> one after another. That would be question. good. Yeah. No answers. No, none allowed. I mean, just like life, there are no answers. Wow, that's deep. Bjorn Magnuson strikes again. <laughs> dude, wait, what? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> no, I can't answer it for you. That would ruin oh. it. Oh, dude. Wait. Warren just this. took off his real glasses <laughs> to mime having glasses that he was shocked about. <laughs> Guys, what if every action we take in life is a manifestation against death? And then Emma just put on his real glasses to take them off. <laughs> and the question we're all asking is, when does Wade realize that he doesn't have any glasses on? My first note for this movie says, absolutely horrifying. <laughs> I could refer to so many things. Do you want to start? Did you want to start or should I start? No, no, I, I wasn't saying, I wasn't proposing that I start. I was just asking if you're starting. Oh, we started. <laughs> oh, this is, uh, we're, we're, we're in, we're in. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. As they gotcha. say, begin anywhere. <laughs> As they say. <laughs> Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Bjorn Magnuson. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are continuing our miniseries, Denny for Two, covering every film directed by Denny Villeneuve. We'll fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series, Emmett. Are you okay? Is this something funny? <laughs> Warren's expression when you said Denny for two. And he's trying to keep it together still. <laughs> you know, it's really Denny for three since we always have a guest, but it just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, you know, they say two's company and three's a party. <laughs> Any, how are you doing, Emmett? Anything else to add? <laughs> Absolutely not. It is... Noon thirty, and I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine as well, Emmett. Thank oh yes, you how are you? Me. How are you, Wade? <laughs> Goes both ways. That's right. I'm great because today we're honored to have a special guest. That's right, folks. We got him. We got him. The worldwide star of Fresh Express's 2010 <laughs> lettuce commercial. Please welcome Warren Weber. Hi, hi, hi. <clears throat> How's it going, Ward? Uh, it's going good. It's going good. Thank you for asking. Thanks for being here today. My my pleasure. Have you ever seen a movie before? Mm, so I know that this is a podcast called Cinnamon Buns. How and... certain are you that that's something you know? <laughs> How certain can we be about knowing anything? <laughs> Thank you, Bjorn. Um, <laughs> and because I know that this is called Cinnamon Buns, I thought that this might be a podcast that was focused on food. Turns out I was wrong. I've had to make some last minute adjustments, and I have since watched the movie. By chance, it was the same movie that you guys watched, which I think works out pretty well. And hopefully, hopefully, it was in the same language. 
Do you speak French, Warren? So it is my first language, and I do not speak it. Oh, is that true? Yeah, my dad spoke to me in French when I was very, very young, and then I thought he made up the language, so I never spoke it back. And then he kind of <laughs> gave up just because I was being stupid about it, and then I don't speak any French. <laughs> so that's kind of one, you know, big missed opportunity. If I could go back in time, I think that'd be the one thing in all of human history that I would change. Did you think in English in your head, having only heard French? That no, it was it's not, not like I only real... heard French. I was born in America. Like, my mom spoke English. My whole family spoke English. People spoke English. Mm, okay. It was just that I had this weird dad who only spoke to me in French until mm. he gave up because I made him. I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I've kind of processed through it. Have you seen any Denis Villeneuve films? Maybe. He, he's done some weird ones that I maybe not wouldn't think of as, as his. Sicario, Arrival, twenty forty nine. I haven't, I haven't seen any of his English prisoners. Ones. So this is the, this is my only frame of reference. So I'm living in a maelstrom bubble right now. Wow. Mm. How do you feel? Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, a certain kind of way. Yeah. Let's get right into it, and and let me say up front that Bumtober is coming. So please uh, send us, email us your suggestions of movie series you want us to cover to cinemabumspod at gmail.com. And we're going to be compiling all of those and starting October 1st, giving everyone a chance to vote on, on what they want us to cover. Warren, is there any, any series you'd like to suggest? No, but I just want to say that that's a dangerous game. You never know what the population of the of the world is going to throw on your doorstep. You could end up covering... I don't know what. Especially when our main two people who email us are Jay and Chandler. And you know they've got weird taste. So please, somebody else send us something. Emmett, we've gotten a lot of emails. Oh, okay. Which is more frightening than it just being Jay and Chandler. We've gotten like ten emails with suggestions already. Oh, lord. That is more frightening than, uh, than it I'm kind of excited to see what they make you do. A big part of our listening audience wants us to watch all 35 Barbie movies. Oh. We're going to end up having to do that if there's a vote. If we, if we don't rig the voting system. We've got to, I just, I don't think we can allow to spend 35 weeks. But if let that's me what say, the people want. Let me say, if you want that, you don't really want that. Oh, so you like, you're just saying you know better. You may think that you want to listen to us. Watch 35 Barbie movies, but you actually don't. What I think would actually be a good idea is a single episode where you watch 35 Barbie movies back to back and then no thinking time, no just like straight off the off the rip, hit record and then, you know, do your hour and a half thing. To be really honest, I also think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I do think that would be the best way to do it cuz like you get us in a room with the 35 Barbie movies 48 hours, you lock the doors, just give us some snacks and some caffeine, some water. Evan, we do not need to hear your personal fantasies on this podcast. Locking the doors with 35 Barbie movies. Dude, we just gotta, like, if we're gonna power through that, we gotta power mm. through that. Do it straight through and then come out of the room. They just, like, direct us towards a recording booth and we go. Who, who's they? Somebody else, because we will be incapable of proper human functioning. <laughs> okay, at that of course, point. the person who's been caring for you for the last sixteen hours as your brains have melted on the floor. Yeah. How how long do you guys think an average Barbie movie is? I'm saying like an hour to eighty minutes is my okay. guess. I could be totally off here, but I was going to guess less. I was going to say between forty minutes and an hour. Oh wow! 
Okay, well, let's go in between 60 and 80. Let's say they're, if they're each 70 minutes. Uh-huh. Wait, you disregarded my guess? No, I, I started at yours. I ended oh. at Emmett's, and I went in the middle. Okay. 35 times 70 is a lot. It would be approximately 41 hours of Barbie content we would be watching. That's what I said, 48 hours. Just yeah, in the it was room. right on. We'll probably need to pee at some point and take like small food breaks. So when you Maybe. count it all up, I don't think we would need to take a break. I think, I think it just we proves that we should always listen to Emmett and whatever he says should be the dominant opinion. Well, we'll have to follow that for the rest of the podcast for it. So <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad I said that. But Barbie might be in the future. Today, we're talking about Maelstrom. This one was written and directed by Denny Villeneuve. It's his second film released September 15th, 2000 in Canada. Runs one hour and 28 minutes, the exact same as his first film, August 32nd on Earth. It had a budget of $3 million and a score by Pierre Desrochers. Good, good. Emmett, <laughs> would you like to try to explain this movie briefly to mm-hmm. anyone who might not have seen it? Which, <laughs> maybe a large population since it's impossible to legally watch this movie. <laughs> I almost thought that I was just not going to watch this movie and say that I had, or watch it without subtitles because I was having real trouble with that, and then just try and know what it was. And I'm really glad I didn't do that because I watched 20 minutes of this without subtitles and was very wrong about what was going on when I watched those 20 minutes again with the subtitles. (laughs) So I also watched it twice, but not because I had made up the entire plot for myself the first time. Um, but because I was just so confused the first time I watched it. I didn't know how I, not about like what happened, but just how I felt about it. I was very mm. confused about my own reactions and the things that it stirred up in me. And it was kind mm. of like, huh, I don't know how I feel about this. And so I had to watch it again. I, in the middle of watching it the first time, also considered not watching it and pretending I had. Huh. But I am glad because I I will say, I think... The last half an hour is, like, the strongest stuff in it. Yeah. Or at least the stuff I liked the most. Yeah, well, that that was the romance. The romance. The romance. So, in this movie, which is narrated by a talking fish, and mm-hmm. we're just going to put that out there, and I'm going to leave it there, because that's... All they, like, it comes up again and again throughout the movie, but really it doesn't have much to do with the plot. And I don't know what it means. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Can we have a talking fish segment? The talking fish segment we'll have later. But it's about a young woman who seems like she had a pretty good life right before this movie starts. She, like, ran a – she ran a couple of boutique fashion stores. She's the daughter of this famous fashion icon. She and her brother run some sort of sketchy crime thing that she's vaguely involved in that we're not really like sure what's going on with that. But at the beginning of this movie, she has an abortion and she starts to feel really guilty about it. And her life, she's like kind of spiraling into a self-destructive spiral. Then she hits a man with her car and causes his death. And of course that doesn't make her self-destructive spiral any better. And eventually she connects with that man's son and they have this strange sort of love affair at the end and there's some amount of reconciliation that seems like a fair summary that that was uh, an admirable job and it's all narrated by a talking fish and is a little Mm -hmm. like disjointed and unsettling 
Well, it's not all narrated by a talking fish. All the narration is done by a talking fish. But yes. there's actually very little narration. He just kind of shows up yeah. and then says something provocative in French and then leaves. Yeah, but it's all in French, so it doesn't. It's not like more provocative because he's saying it in French. Because yeah, that's true. In this instance, that is true. I don't recall hearing any of these names in the movie. Wikipedia is saying that the main character is named Bibane Champagne. Bibian. Bibian. Ah, yes, that does. And that she is the daughter of Flo Faber. Yes, which you find out in the interview with the lady. Oh, okay, okay. I love that interview, lady. Of course you do. Do you want to explain why you love her? I don't know. She's just like, she's on it, man. She's like, she wants the dirty details. She's not afraid to go there. She's not afraid to yeah. go there. Warren? Mm-hmm. Maelstrom? Flop or bop? Okay. I have been thinking about this question. I think I may be the odd one out here because I found it very confusing emotionally. I found it mm. kind of pointlessly provocative and sometimes stupid and i think it's a bop <laughs> okay so that's that's where i'm at i don't know where you guys are at i would love mm. to find out okay emma flopper bob warren could not have possibly put it better i agree it's a bop and all of those other caveats that he also said wait sweet flopper bob unquestionably a flop for me <laughs> I called it. I called it months ago. I'm actually very angry about how accurately Warren predicted our reactions to this movie after watching it for the first time. The majority of this movie is like everything I hate about art. Like the absolute worst things about art are what this movie is for the vast majority of the runtime in ways we will get into. There were signs of life in the last half an hour that pulled me back more than I expected to be pulled back from the first hour. There was some humor that I liked and some interesting plot developments, but so much of the movie is so absolutely horrifying, (laughs) as my first note goes, that it definitely was not enough to uh, pull it around for me. So what the average listener might not know is that Wade doesn't really have a pretentious bone in his body. Whereas me and Emmett are, um, well, Emmett, how would you say it? We plutetantus. And I think this movie kind of played to those strings for us a little bit. Where, I mean, where do we even start? Where do we start with this? Starting with, Warren, what did you like about this movie? I thought the actress playing Bibi was actually very good. Mm. I think it was hard for me to judge because... It's not in my native language, and so I think there is a little bit of a barrier there, and maybe I give a little bit more, like, just kind of assume she's doing a good job when I don't understand things. But that being said, it's actually kind of a melodramatic script if you just look at it. You don't get those vibes watching it. I think she did a really good job of, like, grounding it and making it feel very natural. So I was impressed with her. Yeah, she plays it super real. I yeah. think she grounds it in that way. That means you can have Claire being just, like, kind of dumb, and it's fine. Or you can have, like, these ridiculous kind of character characters who kind of appear out of nowhere, like Talking Fish and Train Station Advice Man and, like, all these sort of, like, people who just show up and are, like, really, like, basically, like, drawings out of a fantasy book. You know, they're unsettling, but it doesn't feel bad. That's one of the things I liked about the movie. What did you like about it, Emmett? Okay, I like that there's this fish. <laughs> there's this gross-ass fish. 
It's getting its head chopped off repeatedly on this chopping block by this gross-ass-looking dude in, like, a loincloth. And it's, like, in the belly of some ship somewhere. And it's just, like, happening. And as this fish is dying, it's telling you this story. And it says, this is a beautiful story. And I think the fish only thinks it's a beautiful story because the dude who was a fisherman dies. And I think it's just, like, this big joke about the fish being like, lol, this old fisherman got killed by this woman, and that rocks. Wow, that's a that's a take that I did not prepare for. And I also do think that she's really, I agree, I think she's really real. And I think she handles, like, a lot of, you see her go through increasingly screwed up situations handle them like a person would, you know? Like a strong person would, but like a person that you know would. And, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, her whole question of, like, do I confess to this? I don't know. It feels like a modern, it feels like a modern, like, fable or, like, fairy tale. Like, and I think that you're exactly right when you said, like, there's bold sketches of characters and she's the only one, like, who feels, like, psychologically real in it. That's kind of true. It's a little bit War and Peace. Or, sorry, not War and Peace, Crime and Punishment. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is also existentialist. And so there's that whole like existentialist thing running through it too that's really cool. They set the scene like a fairy tale because the start of the story, they say a young woman starts on the long journey towards reality. And I was kind of thinking about that through the movie. I was like, is that what she's doing? And then by the end, I think I ended up saying yes, but mm. I wasn't sure exactly why. At, at the beginning, like... It's a good portrait of, like, a woman who's totally out of control of her own life, right? Like, she's, like, in a fog. She's not... I don't know if she's committing fraud or just lying about how she's doing at work. I mean, it starts off off really strong with the abortion that she has. Not that she's out of control of her life, but there's an element of, like, she didn't realize what it meant, you know, for her. And part of her afterwards is the process of her, like, realizing what that process meant and, like, asking Claire about it and, like trying to reconcile those parts of herself. And then in that kind of, like you were saying, Emmett, like in that detachment, in that detached fog, like ends up killing this guy. She's like, okay, am I, am I choosing to like come back into reality? Or do I like, I, you could totally imagine a world in which Bibi just like goes into her own world and becomes like a depressed, crazy cat lady and never goes into the outside world again. When I thought about that, I was like, well, maybe that is what she's doing. But it, I don't know if it's the best way of putting it, but it's an interesting way of framing it. I also think to that to that notion, she's out on the water, like in heavy outdoor gear at the end of the movie, like dealing with real like the real elements and like mm. out in the rough actual world. As opposed to like when we first see her, she's in I don't know. It's like has something to do with reality. All of the movie is like very, very cold mm-hmm. and blue. Very blue. But the majority of it is sort of industrial Mm -hmm. and clean. And then at the end, it is sort of, as you say, like getting more into like nature and the wilderness while still staying very blue and cold. But it is like transitioning from those clean interiors to like the wild of the outdoors. And it also ends with the uh, Hello Starshine, The Earth Says Hello song that plays at the beginning, Mm -hmm. too, which is such a like poppy happy song and it's very contrasty in both times that it plays but it's like maybe there is some hope in that it was also interesting to me that both that song and the like scary story that she listens to on the radio oh is it is that part of a song that's a tom Waits song yeah 
Mm. Well, it was interesting to me that both of those were in English. Hmm. I was thinking about that while I was watching it the first time when I had only been listening to the French. And then the first words that I understood were the creepy Tom Waits stuff. And I was like, whoa, that gives me an impression. But then I was also (laughs) thinking about only speaking French and then getting to this part of the movie and having like a creepy, like American voice speaking in another language that you didn't understand. So there's a lot of fish stuff beyond just the talking. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, The fish is like a symbol. And also, interestingly, the smell of fish. Mm. Yeah. The man she kills by running over him is a fishmonger, not the one we see chopping up the, the narrator fish. Yeah. But sort of like a big chunk of the movie takes place inside his workplace and she can't get the smell of fish off of her car. She has a very Macbeth shower scene where she like can't get clean from the smell of fish after the the murder. Like what is the fish? I don't know. I I don't know. It's part of it is death, right? Like the whole Bjorn Magnuson quote that she thing that she says of like (laughs) we were laughing about this before. Every human action is a manifestation against death, which is a sort of like quasi pretentious existentialist Norwegian quote that she kind of is pondering. The smell of fish and the smell of it's it's the only place where I've smelled dead things rotting that I can remember in like a vivid way. Yeah, I think it has to do with like the fish, like representing the the responsibility following her. Like it starts with her like running over the fish in the street on her way home after the abortion. Yeah, right after the abortion. So it's like this smell is clinging to her already before she even kills the guy. Mm. And then she kills the guy, and then she sees the fish again, and it's like that whole thing coming to her. And then there's a fish at the end when he when like. Her in the uh, in the sun are hooking up. There's a fish that he's like putting in the refrigerator. Oh, yeah. So it's like it's always <laughs> there, and it's not. The, I'm sorry, you're dead, dead fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they also read that fish's guts and say the person who killed your dad is gonna die. That's all it yeah. says. But the person who killed your dad is gonna die. Well, like obviously they're gonna die. That's kind of what this movie is about. Like everybody is, but doesn't mean that she's going to be killed in like some just retributive action you know wait 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 wait, wait. what do you mean when you say everybody is gonna die everyone yeah i mean like i know lots of people do but like yeah yeah. obviously obviously it happens to a lot of people it's always sad when it happens yeah yeah. but like i mean like so for example like me like well i'm just saying when the fish says that that the person who killed her the dad is gonna die it's not like a great revelation or anything that's all i'm saying no but what would you say warren's statistics are i would say one to one oh like a 50 percent chance that's pretty i'll take that exactly i'll take take that that? okay all right yeah that's pretty good like either it happens or it doesn't right yes yes that that would be the operating the operating philosophy once again you've derailed this conversation wonderfully (laughs) Well, it was a good thing that you established, Warren, that Emmett is right about everything. <laughs> so now we all have to live with the fact that we're going to die. That's good. Yeah, I'm glad I did that. That really was helpful of me. There's also like this interesting thing with the perspective shifting throughout. Because it's kind of like she runs over the dude and then we like switch to a few hours earlier in his life. Mm-hmm. And sort of see everything that leads him up to that moment and follow him. And then it, like, switches back to her. 
Have you guys seen Run Lola Run? No. It's a, it's, a, it's a very cool movie. It's based almost entirely on that principle. And it kind of like goes over a single event a number of times from a number of different perspectives. Um, mm, I think I may have seen this oh, one. It predates this movie, but not by much. And I feel like it might also be in French and it might just be an influence on this movie. Oh, never mind. It was German, not French. But it was, yeah, it was 1998. So just... Speaking of Granny, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Emmett. I really felt like this was a big step down in production value from the first movie, even though it has a much bigger scope, I would say. I 100% agree. No, I'll rubber, no, I'll rubber stamp that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This, this looks yeah. grainy as hell. It's very strange. I feel like it almost has to be a choice instead of hmm. happenstance. Like, it's intentionally yeah. lower five than August 32nd. Because that movie is so visually like clean and precise. I was just saying, I didn't have any frame of reference, so I just assumed that this was the way he liked to make movies. There are some similarities. Like, there's the similar sort of, like, quick cuts. Yeah. The momentum shots. But I really felt like it would have made a lot more sense for this to have been his first film. Yeah. And for August 32nd to be his second. Because I feel like a lot of the things that that film does uniquely which are sort of like pushing back against a lot of like the indie film sensibilities mm-hmm. about nudity and shock value and relationships. Like, I feel like a lot of stuff that is fresh in that is like much worse in this or much more standard in this and sort mm-hmm. of lacking that like clear voice. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause when you said this was his second movie, I was surprised for all the good qualities, it's really unpolished. Like, the metaphors are not subtle. It's just, like, they're all over the place and they're strong. And they, like, impact you. But they're not polished at all. They're not well-crafted. Yeah. So I just kind of assumed that this was his first movie. It definitely feels like that. I have a little bit of behind-the-scenes info relevant Ooh. to oh, the yeah. stuff we've been talking about here. Well, lay it on us, please. Denny has, or had at the time, a fascination with car accidents. I've got this quote from them. He said, they're the most dramatic events common to us. So he was sort of fixated on this car accident movie. While he was filming August 32nd, his first movie, it came out two years before, he said that he had the idea for this, but he couldn't crack the story because he thought the protagonist was so unlikable. Well, which, which he solved. He definitely solved that. And so then at the time, he tried pitching the story like to studios and other people, uh, but everyone said it was too dark for a film, and he was arguing that it was a comedy. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think there were funny things about it. <laughs> That's what I'll say. I think structurally it is a comedy. Okay. Bege- she begins like at the low end, and she ends a mm. little bit higher, on a, a, a little bit higher than she began. And so that's a comedy. Jokes optional. Jokes optional. <laughs> talking fish, a must. Okay, so speaking of the talking fish, yeah. the story breakthrough for this movie came when Denny got food poisoning from trout that he had eaten for dinner. And while he was sick with the food poisoning, he had the idea for the talking fish, which like unlocked the story in his mind. And I've got this quote. It says about the idea of the fish being killed and then resurrected, which happens throughout the story. The, our fish it that is, is the narrated. same fish. Yes. It's the same fish, but it is killed and then like... I wish you would have shown it coming back to life because I kind of feel like a stupid viewer now. I don't know. I was coming up with all kind of theories like, oh, maybe this is like the spirit of all dying fish. 
Like, who is it who's actually talking to us? Because he keeps dying. I, I don't know. I was trying to figure out who... Or whether it's the same event happening over and over again, but explained different ways. No, you're not. You're right on the money here, Warren. This is what he said about it. He says, uh, a quote, It was the kind of image of all the storytellers from the beginning of humanity trying to tell the same story over and over again. That is like my relationship with cinema. That's um, incredible. And it is intentionally like it's intentionally a prehistoric type of fish. Like not a huh. fish that is actually uh-huh. a real life fish you could see today. Right, of course. Yeah, so you were totally dude. picking up on the right thing there. Hmm. Dude, that's crazy. That makes it even more existentialist because that fish is just like Sisyphus rolling that rock up that hill, man. He just keeps getting his head cut off and just keeps trying to tell that story. Save humanity. And that's how it ends. It ends with him saying, and the last thing I'll tell you, the secret of your existence. Gets his head chopped off, end of movie. (laughs) Cut to water. That's incredible. I love it. I have to say, that's a stupid ending because we've already seen him get his head chopped off a bunch before and then he talks afterwards so we just need to wait a little bit longer and then he'll tell us the secret <laughs> sure. of our existence well, so i just sure. gotta like get the extended version of this movie which we'll find that somewhere this film did win best picture at the canadian screen awards hell yeah uh, which is what it is now called which is the canada's version of the oscars it won best picture that year wow it was like his first film canada's submission for the best foreign language film oscar but it was not picked they really love old Denny. Huh. Here's a little aftermath. This is the last bit I got here. So after this film came out, despite winning Best Picture and being acclaimed in Canada, Denny said that his first two films did not live up to his own standards for his work. A quote I've got here, he says, They were not strong enough. There was a weakness in the way they were written. So he leaves filmmaking to go on a self-imposed sabbatical to learn how to make cinematic poetry into reality. He said, I will return when I'm ready to make a film I can be proud of. Holy Holy crap. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, And he takes nine years off to be a stay-at-home dad. After making these first two films in two years, he takes nine years off, and then he comes back in 2009 with uh, two more films he shoots back-to-back. I want to listen to the next podcast. Because I'm very curious what's going to happen after nine years of his like uh, self-reflection. I don't. I don't know what he was doing. Just years in the wilderness, raising kids. Yeah, at least for a portion of it. Well, his wife is a, a journalist, I believe, which <laughs> is interesting considering the role of journalism in this movie. Are we assuming that whoever's listening to this has not seen the movie? That's a fair assumption. <laughs> okay. Do you want to explain what? the role of journalism in this movie is <laughs> um so as part of this whole thing bibby is the the daughter of someone famous her brother is like some sort of investment broker and her brother has sent her a ton of money to run three boutique stores which she has failed miserably at and she has lost the investment brokerage 200,000 Canadian dollars. Oh, wait, like they're not bucks. running drugs? Yeah, so really not that big of a deal. <laughs> no, it's just an investment no. firm. No. Oh. <laughs> and you said that at the beginning, but we, me and Wade looked at each other like, what's he talking about? Yeah. No, she runs three fashion boutique stores. She just runs them badly. Oh, I thought she was also like hustling drugs for her brother on the side, and they had to talk to mom, who's like the head of the crime family. <laughs> Ah, I had so many more elements going on in this plot than you... No wonder I like this movie so much. Damn. 
<laughs> Interesting that that's where your mind went. <laughs> Have you heard of a Rorschach test, Emmett? <laughs> so anyway, Bibby is like a big deal to some people. And she's being interviewed by like a very vapid sort of like Cosmo-esque magazine about like style and she wants to talk about business and they just want to talk about style and her father, her relationship with her father. It really felt to me like the movie was building to something happening with her father. Since that is Mm. like the thing that everyone knows about her and sort of this like through line that keeps popping up in the movie, but that doesn't ever really happen. Her mom, right? Not her dad. Or is it her mother? I don't know. Yeah, because she's got a famous fashion icon mother. And she's there's that one moment where they're taking a picture of her and they're like, be your mm. mother. Like, let her come through. Oh, that makes so much sense. That makes more sense. I just assumed that it yeah. was her father. Yeah, because I think her brother's like, mom says hi. Like, why haven't you talked to her or something like that? The photo shoot reminds me of one of my favorite points about the movie. It's a pretentious movie about a pretentious world, a little bit. Like, everyone's Mm. kind of pretending a little bit. It kind of comes to a head in that photo shoot scene, and you just get this this photo camera lady saying the most ridiculous things. Like, she's like, I want you to become transparent. I want you to, like... And it's like... And and you just see Bibian just, like, looking at her, just, like, the most, like, this is all complete BS look on her face, and you just, like... It feels good. Like, it feels refreshing to, like have her see that it's all BS, which I think is one of her strongest points as a character, is you trust her as, like a, as mm. like, a judge of the world around her. Can we talk about the part where she drives her car off that thing and then gets out and climbs up the ladder? Yes. But, like, there's a moment where you, like, because it cuts to something else, so you're like, wait, did she die? Like, what's going on? And then it cuts back to her. That whole part really mm. got me. And in um, in August 32nd, it starts with a car accident with a mm-hmm. long scene where she's trying to get out of her car that has been yeah. wrecked. And then in this one, obviously, you don't see it underwater, presumably because of the budget. But she is also, like, leaving it up to whether or not she can get out of the car. Yeah. To, like, if she should have a second shot at life. Which is kind of a weird premise because, like, couldn't she just, like, make sure she's not buckled in and leave the window open? Is that too like stupid of me to like think about? I don't it think she's buckled in. I do think I don't know if she leaves the window open though. It kind of undermined a little bit of the metaphor for me because I was like, "That's dramatic," and like, hopefully, I guess the impact on the water could have killed mm. her. Even with the window open, it would still be pretty difficult to get out of a car as it's sinking. And wait, you have this. Po- you've had a pondering look on your face for the last five minutes. I've been like, I don't want to like run. I don't want to like say too much but i have to know what you're thinking like what what's going through your head are you just trying to figure out how to talk about this movie that you hate so much (laughs) i don't hate this movie so much we've definitely watched uh movies that i hated more on this podcast can i can i quote your words to you this movie is the embodiment of all that i hate about art it is. It really is. I mean, okay, well, should I rant about this movie? Yes. Yeah, rant about it. Yes, yeah, I want rant you to rant, about it, get it off your chest. Please. So this is my thing about this movie. This movie wants to talk about some very serious real issues, right? We see abortion. We see a hit-and-run murder. We see a suicide attempt. We see her have, like full frontal sex with someone while she's on drugs with like a stranger she met while she was sort of out of her mind. And I think also what makes these Denny movies sort of scary to watch is because he makes it very clear that he will show you the scary thing up close. 
Like, he will not cut away from anything disturbing that is happening in his movies in a way another filmmaker would. So he wants to show these things, but I don't think he has anything to say about them. And I think that if you are going to do that, you have to have a perspective on it, or it just feels like cheap and shock value to me. To make a comparison that maybe no one else has ever made, this is somehow not the first movie about abortion we have covered on this podcast. We also talked about the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. Which is about, like, the choice whether or not to have an abortion where you, like, see a character make that choice. You see an emotionally abusive marriage. You see someone die in childbirth. Like, that is all heavy stuff. And that movie has a clear point of view on that heavy stuff that it's doing. And I morally disagree with that point of view. But I respect that movie so much more than this movie. Because I don't think this movie has anything to say. I think it just wants to poke you and be like, look, isn't this horrible? Yeah. And then not not do anything else about it. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know that it doesn't have a point of view. I'm not saying that someone cannot get something out of it. I'm saying I don't think that they are making any clear statement about anything they're showing on screen. You don't think so? I mean, it starts with... Like, her having this abortion, which she, like, is very, at least conflicted about, right? She's mm. at least very conflicted about. And the soundtrack is, what are the lyrics again, Emmett? It's, good morning, starshine, the earth, cell, the earth says hello, or something like that. It's, like, super, super happy. It's over-the-top happy. Yeah. Right? Mm. And immediately you get a dichotomy between, like, what you know the reality is. That's the only reality you know. It, it's telling you how, oh, you, it's okay, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. And, like, then you get, like, she's got, like, this great life. She's, like, she's an entrepreneur. She's got, she's building this business. But it's kind of a sham because it's not really because she's great. It's because she has a famous mother. Like, she doesn't know how mm. to run it. She's beautiful. She <laughs> has no control of her life. She has no, like, strength of person, which I think she finds in the movie. That's one of the mm. things that I like about it. You're saying it doesn't have a perspective on it, but I feel like it's saying, like, these things come, like, from a lack of... I don't know if it's self-actualization or a lack of courage or a lack of just like that inner strength. But I feel like the car scene is relevant because that's the only that's the moment where she like makes a decision. And like that's you get the the, the fish, the dead fish saying like uh, that she has a choice and like the universe is going to give her a new lease on life. And mm-hmm. she like drives the car off to destroys the evidence. She's not going to get caught for the for the hit and run. We know that now. And there's this kind of like. It's a baptism. Like, she goes into the water, she goes out of the water, new life, and then that's when all the good things start happening. That's when she meets, what's his name, Evian, that's the the son of the guy she killed. That's when, like, things start coming together, and she starts, like, not reacting, but she actually starts becoming, like, a character. Like, she becomes a hero in that moment, in a way. I, I think that's dead right, and I think also it gives her the strength that she later needs to tell the son that it was her yeah. who did it. And, like, they go through Which, that. By the way, is one of my favorite shots from the whole movie is when she doesn't act. You don't hear her telling him, but she's telling him. And she's covering, she's holding him close and she's covering his eyes as she does it. And he's just kind of, like, sitting there. I, I don't know. I thought that was very effective. Yeah. I, w- I was really impressed with him, with his acting in this. Mm-hmm. He shows up late and gives, like, a, I think a really powerful performance. And, like, as soon as he comes into I it, agree. you're like, oh, this is a different movie now. Like, 
this guy can bring, like, life back into it. But there's also the threat of more violence. Like, there's the threat of retribution that's, like, kind of hovered there in that scene where they're all drinking and, like, cursing her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, but they don't know it. And there's that threat. And then it's about, like, how their honesty, when she's able to, like, face what she did and, like, tell him about it, like, that honesty between them, I don't know, it's, like, is able to redeem them somehow and, like, mm-hmm. pull them through which I think is really powerful and intense. Yeah. Also, interesting. I was good. I don't I was going to drop this somewhere else, but I'll tell you now. Um, the text at the beginning of the film, the first title card that is not in French and didn't have any subtitles on where I watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found on, out on Letterbox that that roughly translates to our apologies to our Norwegian friends. This film is based entirely off of stereotypes about your country, uh, <laughs> and uh, and off harmful stereotypes about your country, and we hope you will accept that it is a total fabrication. <laughs> Which I think recontextualizes her friend and the old fisherman and the son are all supposed to be like Norwegian Canadian. Also, there's that great part about the song. Where she's singing and, and she's like, oh, it's so gentle. And the fish says, it's not a gentle song. It's a horrible song. And I was like, I know that song's coming back. We're going to find out what that song means. And then he's like, oh, yeah, it means cut off their heads and spill their guts. <laughs> it's folkloric. I'd love to hear Taylor Swift's cover of that song. <laughs> that is a good call out. I think that is really one of my main takeaways from this movie as well. I would like to hear Taylor Swift cover the Norwegian sing-song lullaby about spilling people's guts. I feel like the most charitable read I could give uh-huh. to this film, to Warren's point, to Warren's point, which I have, which I've listened to and really internalized as much as I can, is that maybe everything before. The baptism, as you say, is so empty and joyless and provocative because that is where the character is at and that's what we're supposed to take from it rather than the actions of a young filmmaker who wants to say something but doesn't have much to say. Well, I think it's both in a way, right? Because okay. like, cause I, th- I, th- I think there is something that is reflected in the world that you're supposed to be like, oh yeah, this is... A Bibion's world, but I also mm-hmm. I also totally like recognize what you're talking about. How it's like just kind of like I'm making a movie and I want to make you feel something, and <laughs> like so you know if you kind of like yeah. have your guard up a little bit in that sense, I think it allows you to hear the other part in a way that's good. But I do think you have to like acknowledge the fact that this is kind of a not crassly made movie, but just kind of blunt. And then I feel like the fish stuff is like weirdly is is a weird juxtaposition with that because the fish stuff is sort of like horrible the whole way through. That's true. <laughs> also, here's a question. So she has this dream. Like after they eat the after they eat the octopus, like oh, her friend Claire is like, Don't uh-huh. have the octopus, you're gonna have a bad dream. Uh-huh. And then she does. She like she goes to sleep and there's this kind of this weird sequence where there's not a lot of dialogue and she has this dream in which this like kind of eel looking fish just like just, like rolls over and then dies. And that's the whole dream. And I was like, why? And I didn't know. And I was wondering if either of you guys knew. <laughs> or if we're just going to be wondering for the next 20 years. 
No, but it horrified me. I have no idea, but it was gross and creeped me out. It did it did yeah. its job. I do think this film is like maybe the most compelling advertisement for veganism I've ever seen. <laughs> like really after watching all that fish stuff, I was kind of like, yeah, maybe I will never eat an animal again. Oh, dude, I was like, I am ready for that pecan crusted drum, baby. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, Warren, who is your MVP? Other than the protagonist, your favorite character in this movie, other than Bibby. I'm torn. I'm torn. Okay. Much like our narrator Fish, you're torn <laughs> too. Many, many times. <laughs> I would say it's either between mysterious train slash bar advice oh. man who oh. shows up to tell her not to uh-huh. turn herself in and also tells the son of the guy she killed that he should forgive Bibian. I can't remember exactly what that conversation is, but that's the gist where he's like, it's going to be okay, basically. He's like, don't talk about it. He's like, marry her and don't talk about it. Oh, that's what he says, right. He's the guy who just like, don't confront the truth and somehow is actually right a little bit. He gives to both of them is basically like, it'll be okay. Don't talk about it. Which is like a very like old school, like emotionally unhealthy (laughs) way of doing things, (laughs) but also like kind of leads them both to a good spot, weirdly. So it's either between that guy or the the, the main fishmonger guy who's like, uh, my, octop- my octopus is the, the main Kelly dad. If you don't like <laughs> it, boss, you can go yeah. fish it yourself. And then he's like, okay, what's going on? Like, where's all this? And then the, he comes in and he's like, I'm so sorry your father died. Let me give you this big fish and we will drink toasts of death to your dad's killer. Incredible. I love that guy too. Yeah. yeah. So it's between those two as sort of like my MVP of um, plot devices. Emmett, um, Warren has taken both of mine, so I'm trying to now think of what Warren has made this be. really easy for me because <laughs> he's taken one of mine. Mm. I will go then with the interviewer lady. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah. like, she's so, I, I don't know. There's just something about her. There's just there's just something about the way that she's like got the read on, on Vivi from the very beginning and just like knows that things are not going well in her life and is trying to get in and like know about it and Vivi's shutting her down. It's just a very strong little scene. And when I watched it without subtitles, I definitely thought she was a cop coming to <laughs> question her about, <laughs> about the yeah. guy's death. And I was a, I was in a totally different movie. And I enjoyed I, it both times. I kind of wish you had watched the whole thing and then written down the plot. Yeah, we're not even like compare and contrast <laughs> like what Emmett thought happened with what actually happened. Well, that's nearly what happened. If I hadn't figured out that there's a little <laughs> subtitles thing on on the magic screen, I would have been screwed, and that's exactly what we would have done. Wade, who's your MVP? Well, it was going to be whichever of the two Warren said Warren didn't pick. <laughs> Sorry. So, that's okay. I think I will give it to our main man who shows up at the end, Aww. who's in like the last 30 minutes. I think he handles the stuff really well and he has to play sort of both like romantic leading man in a rom-com and also like tortured by grief indie film lead uh, in the span of 20 minutes and he does them both pretty well. I was like really affected by the scene 
Well, well, first of all, the scene that I think is really that I loved is that at the end, he's going to fly away. So he sort of meets Bibby at the resting place of his father. They like spend the day packing up his stuff. She doesn't tell him the truth. And then he's getting on a plane to leave and she runs up to him as he's leaving, like in a total rom-com move Mm -hmm. and says, I forgot that I wanted to make love to you. (laughs) Which I think is great. I forgot to say. I forgot to say. Oh, right. right. You wanted to make love to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great and leads to this, like, really intense plot development, which is that the next day he finds out the plane that he was going to be on crashed. And everybody died. Yeah. 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 So he tells her that she's an angel for saving his life, and then she, like, confesses the truth to him that she killed his father. Yeah. And I think that scene is great, and I think the scene after where she's just in bed and he throws his father's ashes on her. Yeah. Yeah, that was intense. That part, that part was so... See, I feel like what Denny did, you know how we said in, in the last movie he had that vision of the taxi driving across the across the salt flats? Uh-huh. I think in this one he had like the vision of the fish and like maybe the vision of like the hurling of the ashes like onto the bed and like the car going over the over the thing and he was like okay what are what are we going to make out of that how are we going to string all those things together you know cuz those are just like such strong images what do y'all make of the title maelstrom which refers to a giant whirlpool from mythology is it norwegian i believe it is and also all of the cuts with the water um i thought he had to come up with the title yeah and i think it's messed up that he didn't call it female strum to be fair dude that's a good point that's yeah 100 percent. that's a 100 percent a great takeaway (laughs) i don't know i just sort of thought it was about this woman who's in like the middle of this Mm. tumultuous whirlwind of a time because it is sort of like every element of her life has failed Mm -hmm. right (laughs) you know like she's really getting it from all angles i guess the movie is kind of about how she finds her way out and the fact that it ends with her on like a calm sea sort of burying the ashes of the worst thing she did you know Mm -hmm. yeah i also think there's something interesting and this goes back to the provocative emptiness of this movie that i kind of feel but i feel like there's something in the comparison that denny makes between the box of the fetus at the beginning of this movie mm-hmm. that they put oh, into yeah. that's true yeah an incinerator and the box of the dad's ashes that the uh-huh. son is carrying around and that yeah. this movie is kind of about like getting rid of both of them or something yeah and, i agree or getting rid of what you're carrying around in a certain yeah. sort of way yeah hmm. what's evocative to me about that title is that like the maelstrom circles downward it's like a thing that pulls you down and it's like this centrifugal force like pulling you down but it also like has a wide-ranging effect and things spiral out of it in kind of chaotic ways and this movie kind of seems to be about like the way that her actions kind of ricochet in the world and come back to her in different ways and like the random is the maelstrom in some way that she like kind of is that yeah that she's Hmm. like and her like spiraling down into herself her like negative spiral has all of these other negative effects on people around her i buy that until it starts to have positive effects by like pulling the guy away from the uh, plane well my, my thing was just like kind of zooming out we've been talking about like the in, like the details of what the symbols are what the like our emotional takeaways are 
Mm-hmm. But I think something worth noting is like this is very much a director's movie. It is kind of an ego project in a way. Mm-hmm. In that like you kind of have Bibian's voice, but only kind of as a proxy for Denis Villeneuve's voice. Like his mm-hmm. he is every character. He is the fish. He is the sort of environment. He is Bibian. He is Claire in a way. Like he everyone is sort of like an aspect of the director. So it's kind of like this kind of, I think that's part of why I feel so intense is it's almost like this, like not egomaniacal, but just like this kind of monolithic one personality movie. Um, Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of space in there to breathe, Hmm. which is interesting. And I wonder if that's one of the things that is going to change with his later movies. Because I think that's one of the things that definitely makes it feel so young as a, as a director, like Mm. makes it feel unpolished is because it's just like this, it's kind of monotonous in that way. Yeah. You saying that makes me wonder if that's like one of the big reasons he was thinking too, where he cites like problems in the writing as Mm. the things that he was like really disappointed with in these two movies. And he's the only credited writer. Yeah. I was surprised when you said that that was the reason, because to me, the writing isn't bad. Mm -hmm. Like the writing is interesting. I just, I felt like the directing was, well, you know, was the weakest (laughs) part about it. Um, Even though the directing was actually pretty strong overall, I think. Moving right along with our segments here, uh, someone has written Wade's Dune book report on the list. I'm not sure what that could be. I'm going to move right along. Okay. So, there's no progress since last week, I assume. There's been no progress. I have not yet begun. Okay, now it is time for our quiz yay this is the part i was looking forward to the most i was like <laughs> so yesterday i was driving around so like i drive around for my job so i was listening for hours and hours and hours and i was i kind of went into this cinema bums like mind loop of like <laughs> oh, of, no. of like lion king one and a half lion king two um <laughs> and then i listened to oh what were the other ones i listened to oh the uh, dirty run scoundrel series also but what i realized is my favorite part of the whole show is when you guys just ask little questions they have a little quiz and then so I was looking forward to this and I don't think I'm going to do very well, but I'm super stoked. I think you might. I think you might. Today we're going, we're playing Bums the Word, which is where we're guessing movies related to this. The theme tying all of these movies to Maelstrom is that all of these are movies about fish <laughs> or that prominently feature fish. All right. Should I just our... start now or do you want me to wait for the questions? <laughs> Wait for the questions, but I would guess that you could get some of them now okay. if you wanted to. Um, all right, I'm no, gonna, no, no, oh, no, don't guess, don't guess, don't guess. Okay, and so this is just whoever gets it first gets the point. Whoever has the most points at the end wins um, a fish. <laughs> Great. The first movie is from 2003. It is an animated movie. Is it Finding Nemo? Yeah. It is. The annoying thing is that's what I was going to guess before we even started the thing, but I held my tongue. And now Emmett swoops in with his almighty claws. Anyway, all right, one, one zero. Here we go. The pitch of Finding Nemo is kind of like, what if the B plot from Home Alone was the A plot of another movie? About fish. Yes, and, and they were and, fish. And they were fish. That's in parentheticals at the end of the pitch. Okay, the second movie is also from the year 2000. It is based on a nonfiction book. It has a pretty all-star cast. It's is it sort of... A Perfect Storm. It is The Perfect Storm. Right. Nice. I don't even know what that movie is. What's that movie? George Clooney on a boat. <laughs> Sounds tight. I don't really know what it is either. It's more of a title than a movie to me. <laughs> 
Uh, Emmett has a two-point lead here, but still anyone's game. This third movie is also from 2003. This is from a very famous director who's sort of a genre director, but this is him doing like a more straight drama Oscar play. About fish, or he just has fish in the title? All of these movies involve, prominently feature fish in some way. But this is a live-action movie. It's not animated. It stars one of the main actors from the Star Wars prequels at the height of their popularity in the middle of the Star Wars prequels coming out. Oh, is this Big Fish? That's correct. (laughs) It's Big Fish. All right, with Ewan McGregor. Yes, directed by Tim Burton. I remember seeing that in the theater with my dad when I was, when it first came out and I was like now that's a movie they like raised the bar of cinema for me for my young now brain that's that's a movie to watch with your dad yeah i feel like your dad in particular would have loved that movie more i have no memory of what he thought about it i'll be honest <laughs> he slept through it okay film number 4 this also stars Ewan McGregor it is a 2012 romance based on a a book of fiction. Ah. <laughs> Wait, will you say the year again? 2012. 2012. Okay. It's in uh, a British film. Can you give us a little more? Sure. Um, this is about a fisherman and a... Oh, is this the scene from The Office where Jim and Pam get married at Niagara Falls? This is a film about a group of people who want to do something. And that something they want to do is the title of the film. So I can't make allusions to it. But there is a fisherman played by Ewan McGregor and a consultant played by Emily Blunt who are trying to work together to make this happen. I really wish I've seen this movie. But I think the honest to God fact is that I just haven't. And I don't know what it is. I don't think. Wait, is it is it Big Fish 2, Too Big, Too Fish? (laughs) (laughs) No, it is not. It is not. Wow, I'm just reading this film was a smash. 34 at the box office off of a 14 budget. Okay. No sequel, though. No sequel, though. Hmm. Can you just tell us what it is? Yeah. Yeah, if you're both... Yeah, Yeah, I think we're both just done. This movie is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Okay. Okay, um, movie number five here is a 1978 horror film. Jaws. No, but this is sort of the first of the Jaws ripoffs. Is it uh, Piranha? It is Piranha. No! Oh, well done. Well done. The poster is exactly the same as Jaws, but it is a piranha underneath a woman swimming <laughs> instead of a shark. <laughs> you know they haven't they haven't finished that uh, ripoff series. You could just keep going with that. You could just put all kinds of different animals underneath there. Wow! Listen to this. This ripoff was remade twice in 1995 and in 2010. Wait, there were not, there was a remake of the ripoff, and then there was a remake of the remake <laughs> of, of the remake. ripoff. Yes, that is that correct. is that is dystopian. Don't worry, there's at least five Jaws movies all on their own. So if you want good wow. original content, you can just watch them. Movie number six is a 1993 family film. The title, <laughs> the title is a philosophical. <laughs> the title is a philosophical concept with the letter Y <laughs> added to the end. That is also the name of a character in the movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, that's a fully unhelpful hint. Um, Amy? This, was, this is a big family movie. It was a big success. I'm sure we all watched it or at least heard of it even several years after the fact. It's Bond franchise. And this is live action? It's live action. It's about a boy and an animal who bond. Free Willy? <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> Okay, I'll just say, Free Willy is, a, is not, a, not a fish, man. I'll give it so, to you. I'll give a, it to you. It's an aquatic mammal. <laughs> there are fish in the film. That's okay, a good point. Okay. That's a good, good point. point. Game, set, match, Emmett Temple. <laughs> okay, um, I've got one last one. The score right now is four Emmett to one Warren. All right, so. so if I get this one, I, that means I win, right? Yeah, that does. Yeah. That is how okay. we play games here. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Emmett has said it, and as we've established, Emmett is right about everything. Sweet. So let's see if he's right about this. This may be a quickest to the draw here. This is a 2004 animated movie from DreamWorks. Shark Tale. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> no! Oh. It is Shark Tale. Wow. Shark Tale is a classic in its own right. I think it's a much maligned, often overlooked movie with some real bops. It's a musical, musical? right? No, there's just music (laughs) in it. (laughs) I know they sing Car Wash. Do they sing other songs in it? I don't know. I don't remember. (laughs) I don't remember. I just have a vague memory of a reggae fish. Would either of you like to give me a one-sentence explanation of what you think Shark Tale is about? Because I'm reading the official synopsis, and it is not what I remember. All right. Here's my guess, having never seen this movie, only having played the handheld games that came in McDonald's Happy Meals. Hell yeah. And those were fun. I think it's about a brave young fish who goes out to kill a mean shark to save a girl fish. Okay. I think that it's actually about the shark. I think it's a young shark who, through many adventures involving a reggae fish, discovers his true identity and overcomes obstacles in the process. Okay, this is what it's about. Shark Tale tells the story of a fish named Oscar, played by Will Smith, who falsely claims to have killed Frankie, the son of a shark mob boss named Don Lino, played by Robert De Niro. Unbelievable. In order to advance his standing in his community. Of course, that was my second guess. That was my second guess. But I just instead decided to go the super vague one. You know what's what's funny about that, that is that it combines parts of both Warren's answer and my answer and makes them even more absurd than either of us could have possibly thought. That's a thing of beauty. I I think that the Shark Tale franchise is still ripe with potential for maybe even a live action remake. Live action live remake. Live action remake. <laughs> Warren, any final thoughts on Maelstrom before we before we call it a day here? No, I I found it like I said a number of times. I found it emotionally confusing, but I'm actually all all things said and done. I'm glad that you guys asked me to watch it, asked me to come on here. We already answered this question, but it's it's a surprising bop. Emmett, final thoughts? Yeah, I liked it. I didn't like it as much as the first one. I'm mm-hmm. excited to see whether my theory about what themes Denny is really struggling through continue in the next couple movies <laughs> after nine years of being a straight-up dad, I imagine they can only have gotten, like, stronger and weirder. So I look forward to it. Wade, final thoughts? 
A lot of the scenes of the couple together before she has admitted that she killed his dad seem to me like a parable for saying I love you too early. Because <laughs> there are kind of these scenes of like her sobbing and breaking down and him being like so confused about what's happening but trying to be there for her. Yeah. In a way that really reminded me of yeah. just when you're Yourself? in over your head. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite line, which I don't think we've mentioned on air, is when uh, the reporter asks her some sort of question about who she's hooking up with. Oh, yeah. And Bibby says, are we talking about business or ass? The reporter's like, ass. And (laughs) Bibby says, I've got nothing new to add about ass. (laughs) Sage advice. So good. My last thing, is there a scene in this movie where she throws her cell phone somewhere? Yeah. Because I have the note written down, tell the Emmett throwing away his phone story. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, so I I will tell the story from the movie where she throws away the phone, and then somebody can tell me the Emmett throwing away his phone story. So what happens is she is on the phone with her brother. Well, she has the conversation on the phone with her brother, and Mm. she... No, the the in-person one where where he's like, he's got the supplier on hold and then he says like oh yeah i've been trying to reach her for months and i haven't been able to get a hold of her and she gets super humiliated she basically quits she fight she's fired she comes back into the store the security guard says no you can't come here your brother says you gotta leave she leaves and then she calls him back to try to make things better again but she says hello and then he answers and then she just throws her phone in the ocean strong move it reminded me of a moment from our own lives oh no (laughs) which is when we were in high school oh no also, I just want to say, it's kind of huh. a weird scene because she could have just not called her brother and kept yeah. her phone. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear what she wants in, in that moment. But I think it will be equally unclear what I want in the <laughs> yes. moment that Wade is about to describe. So <laughs> this, this story also revolves around a simple choice being made. Um, when we were in high school, I think we've maybe talked about before that Em and I met in, in high school. We all... And Warren as well. We all went to an arts high school for our senior year of high school. Uh, Emmett and I were blind roommates. Uh, We couldn't see the whole year, and Warren was our next-door neighbor. We were one day eating lunch in our cafeteria, which was like sort of a balcony over a big field. So we're probably... I don't know, what would you say, 40 feet up in the air? I wonder where the story is going to (laughs) go. And it was like me and Emmett and a group of guys having a conversation. I don't know if you were there or not, Warren, but if you don't remember it, probably not. And we were having one of the two conversations you have as a senior in an arts high school, which is either which of your close personal friends do you want to kiss or how much a part of the system are you? We were having the second conversation. And talking about, like, materialism and being, like, tied to our phones. This was in, what, 2012. We we knew nothing of materialism (laughs) then. That's deep. That's deep, dude. Boggles the mind. Emmett was just, like, uh, said something like, I'm not materialistic. Like, I don't even care about this stuff. And someone else, like, challenged him and was like, you say that, but, like, really, like, you love your phone. And Emmett, like, without looking, without missing a beat, tossed his phone over his shoulder off of the balcony (laughs) to prove that he was the realist. And he was the realist of all of us. Uh, and his phone was Emmett. completely Emmett. broken. <laughs> My phone was the realest, <laughs> the realest of all of ours for a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You are a beautiful, beautiful man. That's all I have to add. 
Oh, Lord. Uh, Warren, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for introducing me to this experience. It has been a whirlwind. A maelstrom, if you will. A maelstrom. <laughs> if the listeners would like to find you online, <laughs> they should. They? No. <laughs> the answer is no. The best way to find me is to go to your local Medieval Times and ask around. <laughs> Great. We'll leave it at that. Next week, we're going to be back covering Polytechnique. Denny's nine years later return to filmmaking. Really excited to see that. And in 50 weeks, we are going to be covering Jordan Peele's Nope. I just want to start the countdown to that today. Oh, hell yeah. Looks like some anything, Anything to say about the Nope poster and title reveal that came out this week? It just looks incredible. I'm so scared for whatever's about to happen. (laughs) I can't wait. Okay, well, love you guys. Bye. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckman. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.